welcome to Critical Horizons, a podcast by the Future Laboratory. We specialize in making a better future happen for businesses through our proprietary trends intelligence and strategic research. We aim to give our clients a glimpse of the future long before the rest of the world discovers it. As part of our Futurists in Residence partnership with the Corinthia Hotel London, we host a regular series of breakfast briefings in which we invite a world-renowned thinker to discuss ideas that challenge the status quo and also shed light upon the emerging behaviours that will drive seismic shifts for brands and consumers alike. This month's guest is futurist Mike Walsh, CEO of Tomorrow. He advises leaders on how to thrive in the current era of disruptive technological change. A true global nomad, Walsh travels over 300 days a year worldwide, researching trends, collecting innovation case studies, and presenting on the future of business. Walsh is also the author of three books. His latest is The Algorithmic Leader, How to be smart when machines are smarter than you. What you're about to listen to is a recording between Walsh and Martin Raymond, the co-founder of The Future Laboratory, in which they cover the future of work, leadership, creativity, and perhaps the most pressing question of all, what is the true potential of human intelligence in the 21st century? It's Critical Horizons by The Future Laboratory. So the issue of leadership now, if you talk about, because it's saying about um, the algorithmic leader, it sounds like you want leaders to be more kind of robotic, more about logic, more about all of those things that we slightly shy away from because we think leadership is about emotion, it's about EQ and all of those soft skills that we were told in, in business books. Well, we I, I mean, I, I, think, I think we have to almost question what the concept of leadership is. I think it's a bit like Christmas. You know, we, we sort of feel like it's been around forever, but it's actually a construct. Uh, right. In the case of Christmas, it's kind of 19, you know, well, the, the Coca-Cola company. Coca-Cola yeah. yeah. And I would say leadership is the Marlboro man. You know, we, we have this construct, American construct of leadership from the business book industry of the, it's like the hero's myth. You know, the, 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 the man or woman who rides off into the sunset and conquers monsters and comes back and saves the village. And that's a big problem now because you have still 21st century leaders trying to get their minds around being a hero and making the big decisions oh, I see. Okay. and, and uh, taking on the responsibility of the community and the tribe. And the difficult thing is suddenly you're in a world where the best way to make a decision is actually sometimes not to make it at all, but to cede it to a smarter system that can automate it for you. Uh, that actually conquering all the obstacles is actually about suddenly stepping back and realizing that you're just part of a much bigger internetworked whole. You know, it isn't about how many people work for you. And I've been speaking to a lot of people, uh, especially in the States, who are experimenting now with automation. The biggest problem they have is that you suddenly have these executives who've measured their self-worth by the hundred people that they have, they have in the business. reporting to them. And suddenly they're told that, well, actually now you're managing five core algorithms. Uh, that are automating all these processes. You have the same salary, the same title, but you don't have all these minions. They're really struggling uh, to make the adjustment. So it's the adjustment because they're not dealing with what I call, you know, volume presence. A lot of leaders say it's about people, having lots of people around you who uh, sort of see you as a, you know, part of their tribe or their group. 
where suddenly there, there isn't a, you know, a face to look at, or you can't really, as somebody said, victimize an algorithm, or can you? <laughs> there's a lot of me to see about sort of bullying and about sort of, you know... There is a, there's a presence element. You know, a little while ago I was in uh, Hyderabad, which is this uh, really extraordinary Indian city where um, in the sort of the heyday of globalization, all the big organizations of the world would, they would take all of your back-end processes and, they would, and there'd be some friendly Indians who would do it for you cheaply and you wouldn't know what was going on. But then suddenly automation started coming in and I, I was in this back office of a big bank and some bright spark thought it'd be an interesting idea to, as they were replacing people, they would actually keep their desks, but there would be an empty desk with the word robot on it. Now, I don't know, this, this strikes me as literally my worst nightmare. Wait, I mean, it's, it's, an, an image it's like a future, manifestation yeah. of your worst yeah. fear, seeing your coworkers disappear slowly yeah. and be replaced <laughs> by the word robot. But, but they were trying to you know, give a sense of you know, the, the visualization of, of, what uh, of what was going on. Would look like, yeah. and, what I think we're going to get to, though, is that it's going to start to become increasingly clear that there is a bunch of leaders in our organizations who refuse or are incapable of making the transition. These right. are analog era leaders. And there's going to be a very clear set of people, you know, whether they're at the top or in the middle or even at the bottom, who've adjusted to this new world where uh, you make decisions in a very different way. So, so can you describe the... the the, I suppose the nature or the process of that decision making because if yeah. you think about it it's people centric it's about your EQ it's about you know um, leading with not power over so what are what are the, the kind of core well, there, 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 there are core parts of that are still very relevant right. so one of the things I talk about in the new book is that to be an algorithmic leader you actually need two core sets of skills one is very you have to have a deep understanding of human complexity right. like what does it take to empathize how do you motivate people? How do you incentivize them? There are abstract concepts like what is a great customer experience? Like machines maybe can recognize elements of that, but they don't have any context for it. So when you can automate a lot of decisions, you actually need human beings to bring the context for why that's important. So there's still people present in the organization. So are the machines now being used no, to, absolutely. to kind of do the, the mundane tasks or is it tasks we'll, we'll, that are more we'll complex? Get, we'll, we'll get to okay. that. Um, because the other side of the skills you need are more machine-like. And uh, it, it's really your ability, and I call it computational thinking, but it's your ability to approach making decisions or solving problems or coming up with ideas even in a structured way that you can leverage data, automation, algorithms to be, to be more effective. So the, the skills and of this kind of future leader, CEO, is it that they have to be more about being able to read data in a particular way? Because a lot of leaders, if you think about it, you know, I was looking recently about dyslexia among CEOs, it's quite high <laughs> because it's about their creative ability and their ability to be agile in terms of thinking. And a lot of them were saying that you know, when presented with spreadsheets and presented with issues about... I challenge the, you on that, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think that... Uh, I was thinking of Steve I don't Jobs. think data and creativity yeah. are yeah. diametrically you think opposed. They're, they're one part of the same thing? Of course. They, they're not a very good friend of mine is actually a data sculptor. He works with Frank Gehry. Right. Okay. And, you know, he creates incredible visualizations using data. I mean, 21st century artists will leverage technology. To work on it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, I, I think people still, I suppose, have a sense of this person being, being remote. Like a computer scientist. And robotic and, and analytical in a way that, you know, increasingly business is meant to be about, you know, emotions, about tactility, about, as somebody said, the adjective of the situation, not the fact. And it sounds to me that you're creating, or not you, well, but, you, but you, the, need, you need hybrid. The need, right. You need hybrid. <coughs> and, uh, uh, 
I'll give an example. So one of the people that I profiled in, um, in the book is uh, a guy called Andrew Vanderberg. He's an astronomer. And uh, so astronomy has changed a lot after the Kepler telescope because the Kepler telescope was just a massive data gathering machine. It, it collected all this data looking for exoplanets, which are like Earth-like planets in, in another solar system. Uh, so this guy from Google, another programmer, said, listen, why don't we train an AI to look at all this to data? To do it all? Okay. I, yeah. And so they basically <clears throat> trained an AI to find planets. It was a planet-hunting AI. And they started discovering planets that all the humans had missed. And the, the point is, is that the future of astronomy is computational astronomy. The future of accounting yeah. is computational accounting, computational archaeology. Uh, there's going to be no field that won't be transformed by machine learning, but it's not a bad thing. So stepping back in that sense, then what, because I always go, what are the higher skills that, um, you know, at the moment I, I, I met a person recently who's teaching um, empathy to algorithms. So essentially they're, they're understanding that an algorithm will have an unbiased sensitivity, or rather they thought it would, but they realize it contains biases from the programming. So the engineer will program the algorithm with their particular bias. So for example, the Google car didn't recognize skin color in the way that it should have. So you were, if you were black, you were more likely to be hit by the Google car because it wasn't recognizing your skin color. And presumably if you're a Republican too. Republican, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. So, so, what, so it occurred to me that even at that stage, so you know, is, is the, the CEO now suddenly becoming you know, more about the ethical Judge Absolutely, and the philosoph you know, philosophic judge of how these the philosopher things, king, philosopher king. Because somebody said to me recently that they've appointed a chief philosophy officer. Well, Volkswagen could have done ethics. with a few philosopher kings, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and, and you know, Volkswagen is an interesting example because they were one of the first companies to discover at scale that even though you may think you're a car manufacturer, you're actually a software company. Yeah, yeah. And more than a software company, you have to be ruled by ethics that go beyond regulation. Um, so you can't wait on the regulators to dictate your moral framework. So this is, because this is what I was thinking is that, you know, a lot of CEOs, if you think about the last decade was about v extracting value and it was about, you know, demonstrating to shareholders that you were able to make a profit. And increasingly, you know, those things are now just, you know, increasingly frowned upon, but also people looking at the ethical framework of a business, the, the um, moral, and I think when we've looked at AI before, the word morality and ethics keeps coming back in the conversation because a lot of people say, well, we don't trust these things. How do we know that they're making the right judgment? So at the moment they're using, for example, AI in American uh, court system to judge the length of a sentence. Oh yeah. So they're allowing the AI to determine, you know, when you come up on parole, they say, well, actually, given that these are the number of crimes you commit, the average type of person that commits these crimes usually should get an extra six months. So the AIs are determining. Well, you, you, need, you need data anthropologists. Yes, to, and, okay, to do and, 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 and you know, one of the people I actually met during my research was a lady called Carolyn Sinders, and she is a, a data ethnographer. So she looks at, where did the data come from? What, what was it collected for right. originally? So the, are there, what are the biases? Who collected it? You know, for what purpose? Right. So we almost need to look at the, the substrata of the, the, the data we're building the world on. So this is where I was, I, was, I was trying to take the conversation because I'm thinking with those kind of CEOs, a different kind of knowledge set, a different kind of, you know, kind of interrogation skills. But also, I suspect that they have to be a... a um, somebody who's questioning the inputs. And, and most CEOs do that, sort of. 
But then, the, you know, the phone... Well, it's the difference between Steve Ballmer and Satya Nadella. Right, okay. You so know, this... uh, like, uh, Steve Ballmer, classic analogue era CEO. Football coach, salesman, we all have, you know, vague memories of him in 1995 on stage dancing, which you sort of never... Once you've seen that on YouTube, you'll never You'll never it. want to see another CEO <laughs> dancing again, yes. And then you look at Satya Nadella, who's, as you say, a much higher EQ, um, uh, obviously much more with it, but... None of these leaders were born. They all made a conscious decision to transform themselves. Uh, I mean, you'd rather see Reed Hastings running Netflix than Rupert Murdoch. To do it. Right. Presumably. So, so on that, so think about decision-making processes, because the, the, if it requires a different approach, it requires, I guess, a different set of, of kind of knowledge, learning, um, even empathy skills. What are the decision-making skills that you think would, would separate the analog leader from this <clears throat> AI leader? Well, there's, there's, there's the... two big ones. The first is every time you make a decision now in the 21st century, I think you have to ask yourself, should I, should I or anyone else be making this decision again? Uh, can I rather make the decision, train a model, or build a system to automate that right. kind of decision? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is we need to get comfortable with being more probabilistic than deterministic. Um, Can you say that again? <laughs> Let me explain it. That, that's better. That, that's one of your six impossible that was things. My, that was my tongue twisting trick for the morning, yes. We need to be more probabilistic than deterministic. And what I mean by that is, you know, deterministic is if something happens, then we should do this. Human beings are naturally deterministic because we had to survive. If a tiger is t chasing you down the savanna, you can't be like, hmm, I reckon there's a 30% chance I'll get eaten. You just, right. run, you just run. Intuitive right? response, yeah. We are deterministic about our friends. Well, actually, that's not true. If you, if you have a 16-year-old daughter, she's probably quite probabilistic. Probabilistic about so she has, They, they yes. have frenemies, right? Someone's 30% your friend. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, context. So, so your, teenage, your teenage daughters or friends are actually far more advanced than you are with being algorithmic. And, and so in the workplace, we tend to be binary, like this is a good decision or not. A lot of the times, it's actually better to say, well, it's 30% chance that this is a good decision. And then as information comes in, you, you can update. In lifetime. This is sort of Bayesian logic, right? Okay. And uh, this becomes important because in the very near future, even though you've still got your job and you've still got important decisions to make, there will absolutely be an AI system that's generating recommendations for you. Right. Uh, it'll be saying, okay, look, there's a, 50 there's, a, there's a certain percent chance the person you're about to grant that, that mortgage to is going to default. So you need to start to understand confidence margins. You need to understand the, the, the way these systems right. make recommendations. And that starts to become part of your secret source in, in being a leader, in, in leveraging so the systems. So I think that is interesting because there are times where, you know, you have a lot of data and what you need is, is like analysis or in, what I call data insight, which an algorithm can do. And I think for a CEO, quite usefully, it would be good to know the recommendation. So, Absolutely. You know, if, if probability is this, my recommendation is, is that. Doing some trials recently where they were using predictive algorithms to work out the outcome of juries. So what is, they ran the model against the jury and giving the same evidence to the algorithm as a jury had, uh, pretty much the jury acquitted more times than the algorithm. 
So what are the, the, you know, we have this, I suppose, human risk factor that a jury can be swayed by the video or it can be swayed by the person crying or whatever. And the machine was looking dispassionately at evidence. It was evidence-based decision-making versus, I think, the human emotion decision-making. And I suppose with, with a CEO, because I always think about... But that, that's, the, really, the, that's a classic example of a terrible idea. I mean, because the whole point of a jury is that it's a jury it's of your peers. Okay, yeah. And the fact that, it's not whether they're <laughs> right or wrong, it's the fact that they bring a contemporary community presence to, uh, to justice. Right. So, so that, that's where I think we, always, we make a mistake with AI. Just because you can automate something doesn't mean you should. Right. If it loses its underlying symbolic consequence. But what were the key case studies that you felt contain some of the messages that you feel people would benefit from if they had to read a short version and go these I know you don't want them to do that but <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm just... not gonna even answer that question uh, only because I can't in that it's it's not one thing um, and that was the challenging thing about writing this was that uh, it's not like there really is a blueprint today for what we need to be uh, what I actually just noticed was that we weren't having the discussion about what we'd want to be. At the moment, it's all just the, the terror of robots are coming for our right. jobs. Yep. And, and, and what's interesting is that if you look at the last computer revolution, computers didn't take jobs away from people. People with computers took away jobs from people who refused to use, use them. them. Yeah. And that's the same thing that's going to happen here. Uh, there will be job changes and redefinitions of roles, but they'll largely be by people who've or adapted these new tools to the way that they operate and increased their efficiency and productivity as a result. And I guess also, you know, if you think about the different types of jobs that it will create, I mean, the fact that, you know, you have people training, teaching AIs to be more sentient, you know, more human, teaching them how to recognise bias. You know, the, what are we going to call those people, like yeah. AI wranglers? Well, they're now teaching leadership programmes at Harvard on, on not as an AI leadership, but how you teach AI to be better people. And one of the courses is if machines taught people to be better people, what would the machines teach people? So what they're trying to do is actually reverse it and get I the like machine that. to start thinking like a person. Because if you think about it, most of us are flawed and machines aren't. And one of the things I, I kind I of I feel like the NRA are going to pick that up. You know, people don't kill people. People with AIs with guns kill people. Will kill people, which is a good way to, <laughs> to, to, to take me on to my next question. Because at the moment, thinking about what's happening in China and, you know, the, 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 not just the, the oh, yeah. data race, but how China has absolutely jumped ahead in terms of, you know, research, uh, deep learning, algorithms, and suddenly... Uh, what should be a benefit leap, because we should be arguing that, in fact, they've saved us a lot of time getting to this point. We're now pushing back against it. We're saying that we don't want 5G, you know, in our, <laughs> in our houses because it's opening a back door into Beijing. You know, they're going to come and spy into your fridge, perhaps, whatever. And it really, I just want you to kind of talk a bit about, because I know that you, you spent a lot of time in, in China. In fact, you're half Chinese, half yes. Chinese and Irish. I mean, that's great, trouble, yeah, isn't Two it? great intelligent races. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, just tell me why you think that the, the, the kind of, um, you know, in the 70s, it was like the China syndrome. Everybody feared China, but then because it was, it was going to overwhelm us with people, not with technology. And now we're having the same debates and discussions, but this time it's about China overwhelming <laughs> us with technology. Because actually, China, everybody's doing so well, they're happy to stay at home. They don't want to come over and live in our terrible countries? In answering that very provocative question, I'll do my best to keep my geopolitical Irish biases to myself. But, <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> uh, 
what I would say is China has uh, two immense advantages when it comes to AI. They have massive amounts of data uh, based on the fact they have a digital population who use not just Facebook, well, they don't use Facebook, they, they use these apps like uh, WeChat, which are like an operating system for daily yeah. life. So you can buy insurance, you can book transportation, you can book a massage. I, I, I mean, you basically can't live in China without Without this. having it. It's an ecosystem that everybody sits inside. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so they've collected all of this information, just not on what, what kind of ads people have clicked on, but basically the orchestration of, of daily life. And they're combining that with immense amounts of fundamental research into learning algorithms, deep learning, quantum computing. So you put those two things together, and they're, they're going to have very, very sophisticated mm. AI systems. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the West, we're kind of racked with guilt, guilt and regulation data and data yeah, privacy yeah, yeah. and the EU fines. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to waste a lot yeah. of time on this. Which isn't to say that things, these are not things worth wasting time on. But it's, it is creating a huge amount of attrition and it's slowing the beast. I mean, the reason I was asking that is I was reading one um, Chinese entrepreneur has, has started working on an AI program that creates um, data avatars of, of people. So he said, let's create a data avatar of America because he, he, they want to take Chinese businesses into America and target them more efficiently and just get rid of all of the, the potential objections. He said, let's just build a replica of America in every sense of the word, collect all the data of people so that I know have data avatars of people in their houses. And he's, he's going, people are going, this is brilliant because it's a really simple thing. In America, they see this as invasion. You know, the scene that the Chinese are now attacking the virtual America and they see that as all out virtual well, It sounds war. like a voodoo doll, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, exactly you create that. a yeah, data yeah, yeah. voodoo yeah. doll and you stick so, it with So tears. I suppose my question is, is, are we becoming those people we feared? You know, because we, 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 we pride ourselves in a country where it's meant to be about efficiency, progress, moving forward, embracing the future. And here we are absolutely refusing it. And a country like China, which was accused of maintaining a very kind of closed, backward-looking view of, of the past is now literally building the future. As you go, you know, when you stand in Shanghai, it's appearing in front of you. And my question is, is this fear a fear of technology? Or are there other issues that oh, underlie it's, it's absolutely of, of... clash of civilization yeah. stuff. And the thing is, is that the, the best antidote to most people's biases about all of this is just to spend some time in Asia. Yeah. And you just realize that it, this is not a new thing. I mean, when I wrote Futuretainment all those years ago, I wrote in 2007, it was directly as a result of spending a number of years in Japan and Korea and China and seeing how advanced they already were with mobile technology long before we got the iPhone. The, the West likes to think they invented... Uh, the, everything. Everything, but, but yeah. particularly the Including, digital world. Yeah, noodles and chopsticks. And yeah. Steve Jobs basically uh, took the best of what he saw in Japan and he turned and it into the it iPhone. Yeah. Uh, and we forget that there's been a long, uh, a long tradition of us importing ideas, actually. So just, just on that, because it, I, I'm kind of thinking about stepping away from your, you know, your, your kind of writing and, and consultancy and just going back to the notion of um, forecasting and how you, you kind of look at the future. And I know I was reading a piece on um, Chinese <coughs> political history and they had a you know, the, the scenario planning, which is something we, we kind of introduced, I guess, from the 40s onwards, existed as part of the Chinese civil service. They would do future forecasting, looking at potential, 
uh, the, the, as somebody said, the, the objects that would prevent you succeeding and the things that would allow you to gain what they called momentum. But they did it over time. So they weren't looking at a you know, five-year or a seven-year window. They were looking maybe at a 500-year framework, you know, what we call long-form forecasting. And uh, you know, I, 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 the truth is, is that futurists will often dress up what they do. Uh, and they're, they're making educated guesses like everybody yeah. else. Because uh, uh, futurists always talk about what they're right about. They don't tell you about the 80% of things they were wrong about. It's actually not about making predictions. I think I really see the role of futurists as um, provoking discussions around the kinds of decisions we want to make about the... the how it could be. And, how, and how it could be. Yeah. It's about philosophy, really, because... Yeah. Uh, you know, we had this discussion, I remember when we, when we chatted last time, which was you said, how did you know when you wrote your last book that we would be arguing about these things? And the answer is because we always argue about those things. Yeah. It's just that you throw in some emerging technologies uh, which create new conflicts about who we are, our values, our priorities, how do we feel about modifying our humanity or people living longer or economic redistribution or inequality. We've been talking about this since Marie Antoinette. Right? It's just now it's universal basic income, uh, yeah, yeah, or it's it's robots rather than you know feudal serfs. So, the the the, the technologies change, but the quintessential part of what it is to be human and to live with each other is universal. So I think that, I mean that's why I was saying about the the I guess the stories because you know if you think about you know futurism forecasting, uh, in essence you can't predict the future because the future hasn't happened, but you can look at. What is available you can't predict assumptions. the stories we're going to be telling yes, about it. Yes, and this, exactly. And that's the issue is that we shape the future by the stories we tell. Of course. And, and, and uh, increasingly, um, we, I think businesses... And importantly, the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. Because stories are our interface to reality. And, and that, that is, at essence, is, is really what this book's about because we've been telling ourselves a story about leaders for a very long time which is actually holding us back from, from seeing the... getting to do the job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, the story we've told ourselves, like I said, of the, you know, of the Stone Age leader protecting the tribe. You can blame Simon Sinek for this. You know, he's been propagating this for some time. Uh, it is really... It, it, we like to believe it, but it's actually desperately wrong. For many of us, the future of work is being freelancers, coming together like a movie project, uh, collaborating on a vision, and, and that's where people, I think, make a big mistake when they talk about universal basic income. Right. Because uh, they said the solution to automation taking our work is just to give everyone a living wage and let them watch Netflix. But, uh, but we don't actually work just to pay our rent. We work because it gives us meaning and context and significance to our lives. And a, one of the most exciting things about the world we're moving into is I think we will be more motivated by meaning and by purpose. And it, it's not the job for us to work for some visionary leader. It's about coming together to do something that matters. And companies will be more flexible as a result to allow us to do that. Do you, do you think that's a... Because um, I just spent pretty much most of my day yesterday looking at, at generational motivators. So looking at you know, Gen Z, Millennial, Gen X, and all of the, the, the kind of common factors were about meaning and purpose. So all of the, the groups you talked to said they wanted jobs that were about meaning. Uh, they wanted to have social purpose in, in the things they were doing. And when I spoke to people over 40, they were hugely cynical and dismissive of it. They go, no, you know, it was money, we want time off. It was all very practical. <clears throat> so my question is, was that just an age thing in the sense that as you get older, you realize you know, 
time is closing in on you, you've got to buy your way out of it? Or is it that we are dealing with, with you know, if I chat to people in mid-20s, mid-30s about tech, about AI, there isn't that inhibition about it. It's it, it seen to be an enabler and a way to escape mundanity to, to move towards meaning where the older groups see it as a way to trap them because it's... Sorry, it's, my brain's still spinning on the fact that Gen X is not over 40. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm, no, no so I'm, Gen X is 40. Because I'm over 40, now I'm 45. worried. 45, you're, you're <laughs> very typical Gen X, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, but it's just more about the, 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 the... I miss the days where people used to care about what we thought. Yeah. <laughs> you millennials here, this will happen to you. No one will care about you very soon. <laughs> I'm worried about Gen Z. So just, just um, on, on uh, the, the um, dangerous ideas... Okay, 88, because we had this, we are joking in the office. You know, that was just for the Chinese market, but it yeah, absolutely yeah. did not work. T to do at all. No one no. in China bought it. So, so what, was the, what was the most dangerous idea? What was the one that well, you there's, felt? There's, there's, there's a couple of things that, that I, I think, uh, you know, sometimes you, you write these things and it takes a while for them to actually matter. Usually by which time people have forgotten your yeah. book. Uh, and the, the two which really, I think, are still just on the verge of becoming really significant are digital biology. Uh, which, I mean, you saw yeah. that the Chinese yeah. just now have successfully created a pair of AIDS-resistant babies, because yeah. that's what the world needs right now. And uh, yeah. which, as a side consequence of them making those modifications, are actually more intelligent with better memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, th I think it was interesting that... Um the that just sounds so good, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's, you can it's, have sex with anyone you like, and you get to be smarter. Yeah, that's... that's <laughs> How it used to That's be. That's a very dangerous yeah, yeah. idea. But I think the, the notion also <laughs> of, of ideas being dangerous, you know, that the, 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 an idea should also, you know, progress, develop. And we now have this, this sense that an idea in itself is, is well, I, dangerous I, I, because in, it's in what? Fairness, it's I, I stole this thinking. from Oscar Wilde. Oscar, right. Oscar Wilde said, uh, you know, an idea that's not dangerous is not worth having at all. Having it, well, without a doubt. What was your second most dangerous idea? Uh, it, it's really about quantum computing um, because... Uh, this actually happened a lot sooner than I thought. The, the, once again, the Chinese already have a, developed a quantum encryption, quantum satellites. Right. The minute someone actually develops a fully functioning quantum computer, uh, literally run for the hills because all of your security will be gone. gone. Uh, all of the bank tokens used to protect your money will be compromised. Um, just go buy gold at that point because you're in big trouble. That's it. Do you, do you think that there's, there's always an assumption? Because if you think about the future, there's always, you know, we, we tend not to have a utopian version of the future. It is always about, <laughs> it's like dystopian, and it always involves machines. Like it That's always relatively involves, new though. I, th I yeah, feel like in the think? 1950s and 1960s, we were, we were much more, you know, better living with technology, the Jetsons, you know, we had Do, a... We, there was optimism, maybe it was, that was a period of, because if you think about H.G. Wells, and you look at Jules Verne and, you know, uh, Walsencroft, it was always about technology causing dangerous or damage. I think it's it? cyclical, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I, maybe, as, uh, maybe we do go through cycles with this. Um, I mean, now, I, I, I'm not sure we are entirely dystopian. I mean, if you, even if you look at science fiction films, there's a, there, 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 it's, a less, it's a little less Blade Runner, Blade Runner and grimy now. So I was looking at, at uh, uh, this whole new generation of, of chatbots which have been created, which you know, pretty much when you go banking online now, it's a chatbot responding to you. Hi, Martin, how can I help you? Whatever. And it seems fairly reasonable because, I, you know, if it gives me what I want, I don't really necessarily want too much else from it. However, I, I met this chap recently who's created <laughs> personal chatbots for you so that 
the bank chatbot can chat to your personal chatbot and then the chatbot brings oh. to you yeah don't talk to me my tech will talk to your tech. yeah 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 well this is the future of, of social media yeah i mean did you see there's this guy who actually created a um an ai to replicate being a social media influencer yeah so it just scraped really annoying photos yeah. from other people's accounts yeah and automatically sent emails to restaurants and hotels asking for yeah. freebies yeah. And apparently it's been very successful, but yeah. so, you know, that's really the near future where bots will be liking bots. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the real complexity around AI assistance isn't the sound of the voice or the name, it's the embedded data and, and the way it makes decisions. I mean, you think about it, uh, search results can be biased, but there's still 15 of them on the page. When you ask an answer to a, AI, a voice AI, it comes back with one response. One response, yeah. So the possibility for bias or distortion or filter bubbles is much higher. Um, and it's paid for it, because I guess what they call you know, skills bidding. So you're bidding for skills. So if you ask a machine like Alexa about, you know, Alexa, what are the top five places to go on holiday to? Somebody, what they call skills, they bid to have the rights to be in the top five. So, that, you know, we even realize at that point, it is monetized, um, what I call, you know, uh, personal advice. So when yeah. you go to your doctor or your, your gym coach or whatever, you expect what you think is a you know, personal service based on what, you know, what your requirements are. You don't well, expect an auction result. Exactly, and that's, that's, they're the bits you're getting. So I think that, because the, we had this debate in the office about you know, the, 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 the they issue of, of AI, you know, it's, it's male, female, whatever. You know, so the similar thing is just well, when you decide what you want it to be, because what you're, what you're not really, as, as Mike points out, what you're not really understanding is what are the voice sounds male, sounds female, sounds neutral. Behind it, there is an iceberg of potential danger I, that isn't visible and you're being conned by the yeah. voice into thinking it's a neutral platform. And you've got to think about the people who are building these things. I mean, I, I met Ray Kurzweil once, you know, the guy from Singularity, and I said, you know, what are you most excited about in the future? And he said, look, it's going to be amazing. In the very near future, we're going to be literally hardwired into the cloud. Um, you know, we're going to have these AIs talking to us. And I said, well, what will we use it for? He goes, can you imagine you're walking down the street and you see a beautiful girl and you've got nothing to say to her and suddenly a very funny joke comes into your mind from the AI and you can speak to her. I said, you realize the horror of that? Literally yeah. women are going to be bothered by yeah. nerds all telling them the same joke that Siri has offered them. I mean, this is literally a dystopia. Yeah. One final thing, Mike, because we have this thing. I don't know if anybody here will, will listen to um, Desert Island Discs. Yeah, everybody's got, you know, you get your collected works of Shakespeare, complete works, in fact. These you people also are too get, young to know what yeah, discs are. The, you also get, <laughs> you also get your, your uh, one luxury item. And we, we give a copy of The Shape of Things to Come, H.G. Wells, oh. great utopian book. Uh, if, and I, there is a cupboard, we have this idea, there's a cupboard somewhere in the hotel, you know the story, that it's a time-traveling cupboard. And we're, we're about to take people into it at some point later in the year. But if you could go into the cupboard and go to the future, because I know part of the book you look at backcasting, which is really about living in the future and coming back, having learned the lesson. If you went to the future and you were asked to collect one object to live in your luxurious um, Corinthian desert island, what would that object be? And how do you think it would change the world as a current? How would I do a reset as in all great science fiction, the object from the future resets the present to do something in the future Come what on. is that object any truly any true 80s fanboy knows the answer to that question the sports almanac 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to get it before Biff gets it. Perfect. I'd like to thank Mike. Um, the algorithm reader is now available. We've got I've 10 copies 10 out copies there. Here. Uh, so I'll happily sign any the one that wants to uh, pay for my lunch money. Yeah, perfect. And also, can I recommend um, Between the Worlds? That, that, you know, when Between Worlds, rather, when you have um, something to do that requires learning, and something that will help you better understand the or future. Or you have trouble sleeping. Or you have trouble sleeping. Mike is the person to listen to. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about how we can help to make a better future happen for your business, go to www.thefuturelaboratory.com and also make sure you bookmark our editorial platform www.lsn.global